Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Back to Fat Chicks on Top and Happy Pride Month. This is your host, Auntie Vice. I'm thrilled to be here today. This kicks off a two-month intensive on politics and politics and the body. I decided there's so much negative stuff going on in the, the U.S. right now and, and worldwide around bodies, especially LGBTQ bodies. I decided to start with a positive one, and I started in my home state, California, because we have some really exciting legislation going on today. And uh, I have with me today Fiona Liu from Gen Up. It is a student-led organization that works with legislation and policy to make the world better for students at many levels. And I have Amy Moy from Essential Access Health, who Essential Access works around sexuality and reproductive health. Again, two things that are really under attack in this country. I want to welcome both of you to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Antivice. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. And I'm really happy to be here. So, Amy, do you want to give us a little overview of your organization and what you guys are currently working on? Sure. Well, Essential Access Health has been around for over 50 years, and we are all about advancing health equity and sexual and reproductive health care for all. And when we say all, we mean everyone, regardless of where they live, how much money they have in their household, who they love, their gender identity, um, what health insurance coverage they have or documentation status. So we work to um, increase access to sexual and reproductive health care that's high quality for everyone to make sure that there's no wrong door for accessing the essential health care that anyone wants or needs to own their health and take care of their health and well-being. And we do that through a wide range of programs and um, services, including by distributing critical state and federal resources to support the delivery of sexual and reproductive health. We do provider training to make sure that healthcare teams in diverse health settings across California and across the country have the latest and greatest in providing equitable, inclusive, high-quality sexual and reproductive health care. We do advocacy. We have a great opportunity to talk about some of our advocacy work today. Um, we also work to um, increase public awareness about sexual and reproductive health. So really um, happy to be here. And, you know, increasingly, it's really important for our work to really lift up the voices and expertise of the community members and, and folks that are experiencing health inequities to also come up with the solutions and the resources to help um, improve access. And that's why we're so 
thrilled to be partnering with Fiona and Jen up and some other groups and, and really being a supporter for youth leadership in the issue that we're, we might lead with today. You guys do amazing work. I've been referring folks to your organization for years for different things because sexual and reproductive health is so critical in just being able to move through the world in the way you can safely. And I love that. And Fiona, do you want to give us a a quick rundown of Jen Up? Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you so much for the introduction, first of all. So my name is Fiona. I use your pronouns, and I'm currently a high school senior from Orange County in Southern California and the co-chief of policy for Gen Up. We're basically an entirely youth-run organization, and we work on both grassroots advocacy and also legislative advocacy surrounding the state of California with topics such as education or other services that pertain mostly to youth. So um, in my role, I lead our K-12 branch where we work on K-12 education as well as supporting minors. And then we also have a separate collegiate branch that works on higher education policy. But um, we mobilize and empower students to draft legislation and think of bill ideas just from things that they've observed in their experiences and in their school setting. And we find that we're different from or other organizations because we really like make sure that youth voices are leading these conversations, especially because a lot of education policy or policy concerning youth in general affects youth. And a lot of the times they don't have the same capacity of, I guess, decision-making and input in these processes. So currently in the legislative process, we have three of our own student written bills and then over 20 or over 10 other co-sponsored legislation just from the K-12 branch. And then we have a couple more from Collegiate. That's incredible. It's come so much further from, you know, 35 years ago when I was in high school <laughs> and uh, youth really didn't have a voice. So I reached out to both of you because... California is taking a very different route than so much of the U.S., where we're banning books and jailing librarians and saying you can't talk about all of these different things. I reached out to both of you about uh, SB 541 here in California, which would require high schools provide internal and external condoms available for free to students. So where was that idea generated and why why should we be spending state money to provide condoms to kids? That's the question people are going to ask. Well, I can start, you know, first I could say, you know, at this time where we are in our country, and as you started off at the beginning of the podcast, just recognizing kind of the the tenor of the landscape right now. And so we are really lucky to be doing this work together in partnership in California. And California has really been a leader in emerging policy solutions and innovations to expand and protect access, fundamental rights. And um, we are just, again, so lucky to be doing work in a state that really understands the essential role that sexual and reproductive health, bodily autonomy, and being respected and valued with for who we are, really understanding that. And so the this bill really came from and and I could start and we did uh, an initial survey at essential access through our teen source program to see what are some barriers that youth still face even in California. So we are again lucky to be in California, but we still have work to do. So what are some of the barriers that remain? And condom access was actually lifted up as as an issue. 
where we learned that over half of survey participants said that they don't have condoms in their schools. And then we did a follow-up focus group with youth to see what barriers to sexual reproductive um, health access remained. And over 75% of the youth that participated in those focus groups said that it was important to have greater access to condoms and to have free condoms in school. Thought They thought 75% thought it was very important and 25% thought it was important. So that's 100% of youth participants overwhelmingly saying condom access is important. And then from, you know, our stance, you know, in the public health field, we know that youth are experiencing STI rates um, at a high disproportionate rate. So according to recent data released by the CDC, when it comes to rates of infections of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis that are arising across the country and in many populations, in 2021, over half of reported cases were among adolescents and young adults aged 15 to 24. And the CDC also recommends that condom use is an essential tool that can effectively support health and well-being and reduce, prevent the transmission of STIs. And we know here in California, young people make up more than five out of every 10 chlamydia cases, and more than 87% are youth of color. So we have a real health equity issue. Um, So that is kind of why we came together with and our many of our um, office and a wonderful group of co-sponsors to say, what can we do about this? Yeah, I can kind of talk about the student aspect of it. So I really like how Amy brought up that. I feel like California is just such a trailblazer. And I remember when last year when we passed the free menstrual products in schools bill, a lot of other states adopted it as well. So hopefully like when this passes, other states will take inspiration from California because we're (laughs) really great. I think from the student perspective, there's just a lot of um, stigma and like lack of comprehensive sex education that will like, I guess, perpetuate certain students to not seek the proper provisions in protecting their own health when having sex. And when condoms aren't readily available, especially in like districts where there's more stigma, like for example, my district, we're very, it's a district that is um, academically like high performing. So we don't really talk about our social lives. We don't talk about sex. We don't talk about relationships that much. It's just something that isn't very normalized. So in that case, if condoms aren't readily available, students will feel embarrassed to seek it out and in turn will use um, less condoms and less protection overall. And some districts do provide free condoms. So then it's just also an inequity because certain districts don't. And it, it, like the districts who don't are probably the districts who need to because they serve like a certain demographic of students who don't have access to essential needs such as this. So I think that's it's also just like a topic that isn't very t- like much talked about among students, which is why like I, along with many other students, really appreciate that this bill is currently circulating the legislature because it's just like an issue that has been, I guess, like buried down because of the stigma and things like that. And coupled with like, you know, lack of sex education in school. Sophia, let me ask you, since you are a student and in school and things are really t- in, like I came of age during the first wave of HIV. So all sex ed was sex will kill you (laughs) was the message that we were getting. What type of sex ed are you guys getting in school these days? What are you seeing on the ground? 
Yeah, I've honestly, I've seen it very, like very differently amongst all school districts, which I think is kind of a problem. Like I've heard some schools who don't even offer like health education. So like they naturally don't even offer sex education because usually sex education is attached onto health education. In my experience, I had sex education in middle school and in seventh grade, I believe. But since then, that topic has not been touched on at all, even in high school, which is when students start experimenting. And I actually just found out the other day that this it's like a law right now to like provides comprehensive sex education in high school, which was very surprising considering that I've never gotten it in my high school. So I think like, again, like, I guess a portion of it is also an implementation issue, which is why like there needs to be, I guess, more of an effort to make sure that schools are complying with this because it can be like very dangerous for students to not know about how to protect themselves and their own health. Absolutely. And Fiona got it right. You know, currently, you know, and and unfortunately what Fiona, you shared is something that um, I've been hearing all too often, which is when you ask youth, what kind of sex ed that they received, oftentimes it is like, what sex ed? And that is, you know, that is disconcerting across the board for any youth. But here in California, it's very disappointing uh, because we do have a law, like Fiona mentioned, that does require sex ed in public schools in California to be comprehensive and inclusive. And Fiona also got it right when she said, and it's a real implementation issue, accountability and tracking and not enough resources to give this law teeth. And, you know, being in the policy realm, it's kind of like, well, you know, the, there's a Zen koan, like what's the sound of one hand clapping or if, a, if like, what is the impact of a law if it's not being enforced? And in this case, we do need to make sure that all of the hard work and mobilization, uh, as Fiona knows and directly, and as I know, that, you know, and, and you know, anti-vice from doing policy work, it takes a lot of work to get laws passed. And then we have to put as much effort also and get resources to support tracking, monitoring, and implementation. And, and I also just wanted to add to what Fiona was saying about the inequities of you know, access to condoms. That's There's also inequities when it comes to access to sex ed. And while um, sex ed should be required in all schools, it does often depend on the school district, what they'll allow. And if sex ed is allowed in schools, they might be able to talk about the importance of providing, of using a condom for uh, greater safety if one does engage in sexual activity, but then they might be prohibited from distributing condoms at school. So it's a mixed message. So that's something that SB 541 is seeking to address, is create equitable access to condoms for California youth. It's a bold idea, but it isn't new. Um, certain school districts do allow this and have done for, for decades. And so now we just want to level the playing field, um, as well as making sure that if sex ed does occur in schools, that schools can't prohibit the educators from distributing condoms at, in schools as well. And you bring up the equity issue, which is so important because we do struggle with that in the implementation here in California. I'm in Nevada County up in the Sierras, and there is one high school we know of that provides sex ed. With the pandemic, all of the others decided to just shut it down. We're just not going to teach it. And it's I'm with a coalition that's working to get it back into the schools because it's critical that people have this implement have this information. 
Amy, because you provide, your organization provides access to people regardless, insurance, income, all of that. When in areas where you don't have sex ed, are students accessing your healthcare and what are they accessing it for? Mm. And, you know, for essential access health, we are not a direct service provider at this time, but we support the delivery of quality sex ed, adolescent friendly services at health centers across the um, the state. We also have a program, Teen Source. So we have a, it's teensource.org. It's visited by over 500,000 youth each year. And so also with the recognition that while we want to support sex ed going on in schools, that even if it's happening, it as Fiona mentioned, it might be tacked on to a health ed class and how much detail is being offered? Is it enough? Is it being provided by somebody who's even comfortable with the subject matter? Often not. So we knew that we wanted to supplement the information and, and access points that youth can have through Teen Source. And so Teen Source is a website uh, with content by and for California youth, trying to meet youth where they are, which is I was going to say it used to be online, but now right, it's on their phones. So whether it be going to the website, teensource.org, or following our socials and doing some, you know, digital outreach activities like Ask Me Anything, AMAs on IG, doing IG lives and stuff, anything that we could do to try to supplement, you know, youth access and empowerment when it comes to um, sexual and reproductive health. And we also have a youth advisory board making sure that we are also walking the walk and making sure that we have teen and youth leadership in our youth programming to help make sure that it's we are meeting the needs of California youth. And I want to get out there just for people listening. In California, if it's over the age, I believe, of 12, if you need reproductive health, you don't have to seek it with a parent, correct? That's correct. We are, you know, another reason why we're the golden state for sexual and reproductive health is recognizing that um, youth should have the power to take control and ownership of their sexual and reproductive health. So we don't have any parental notification, consent laws. Um, The age of 12, as you mentioned, and up is the age of consent. We also have programs like the Family Pack program that offer uh, sexual and reproductive health services for free that are confidential for youth to access and that they can enroll in the program pretty easily at most sexual and reproductive health care provider clinics. Excellent. So Fiona, you had mentioned that at your school, it's much more focused on academics and, and all of that. And talking about social lives and sexuality is not a top priority. So when your friends get together, when you hang out, does it come up? And how do you guys go about learning about this if you haven't had any sex ed since seventh grade? I would say it barely ever comes up. I think also, like, I think we just have a really heavy emphasis on talking a lot about just school and, like, our family and our relationships and things like that, but less about, like... I guess how we like develop as adolescents. Um, And it was like a very awkward period when we were like all experiencing puberty because we don't really talk about that kind of thing. I would say like for me, because I'm involved in the reproductive and sexual health space, it's been a lot easier for me to get resources just through like adult mentorship and contacts and, and learning while I'm, you know, being in these spaces. But for a lot of my peers, they really don't know like where to get services, especially like around Orange County, which is 
a more conservative area. Um, and the dangers of just like, you know, those services that are like misinforming people. So I think that like a lot of times they come to me because they know I'm involved in these spaces. But if it was just like by themselves, I think a lot of students wouldn't know where to go um, if they need ever like reproductive or sexual health services. And that's got to be rough. I, like we know from from studies that that's why kids, especially between like 15 and 22, turn to porn is they're trying to learn about sex and sexuality, which is not, it's not meant for education. It's meant for entertainment. So California has been kind of trailblazing on a lot of stuff. And with some of the recent court decisions and with states limiting access, uh, what have each of your organizations done around abortion and reproductive care? Because that's another enormous issue for people to have bodily autonomy. So I know both of you, uh, have, your organizations have worked in these areas. So if you want to address what you guys are doing that way in policy and, and advocacy, that'd be great. Yeah, I can start with this question. So right now, Up is working on two bills that have to deal with reproductive and sexual health. So this one is the first one. And then another one is Assembly Bill 598, which is actually a Up written bill. One of our student policy directors wrote it. And it basically has to deal with adding questions on the California Healthy Kids Survey that have to deal with what type of like sexual education um, are they getting, like whether they know um, about abortion services nearby their school district or if their school provides them with those resources and kind of what the landscape is around HIV awareness and other um, STIs. So that's one of the bills we're really working on. And it's authored by Assemblymember Wicks, um, who has been amazing in that space, um, the reproductive and sexual health care space. But I think being in California, it's like a very privileged role being in a state that allows for, you know, reproductive rights and queer liberation. So I think it's important to kind of make this state like a sanctuary for other people, but also like trying to empower other youth in other states to also mobilize around these issues. Yeah, those are such great bills. Um, and Assembly Member Wicks is indeed a, a champion and, and a wonderful, um, yeah, lead when it comes to sexual reproductive health access issues. Uh, Essential Access is really a proud member of the California Future of Abortion Council. We are part of the steering committee of that council. So right after Texas enacted SB8, which was kind of like the first, even before uh, the Supreme Court overruled and um, and dismantled Roe versus Wade, the state of Texas, as many know, passed SB8 that basically was a, an abortion ban. And so right, right after that, California stepped up. Governor Newsom came out and said, you know what, we're going to go the other direction, as Fiona said, we're going to be a sanctuary state. California is going to be a reproductive freedom state. So with that, the administration and folks who have been in the reproductive health rights and justice movements came together and said, well, what does that mean to be a reproductive freedom state? And what does that mean at this particular time? Um, you know, sexual and reproductive health access has always been essential. It is now urgently important to not only make sure that in California, we're doing everything possible to ensure that Californians, people living in our state, have access to the sexual and reproductive health care that they need and want with dignity and respect, and also that we are that safe haven for folks who are forced to travel because of the cruel 
and inhumane policies in their states. Um, so we are part of the helpers. The Future of Abortion Council last year passed a wide range of bold policy package um, of more than 15 bills that also led to over $200 million in investments to uh, protect and increase access to abortion care and sexual and reproductive health care, including funding for grant programs that now Essential Access is really proud to be able to lead. One was a, a Los Angeles County Safe Haven pilot program with Los Angeles' proximity to Arizona, which is a restrictive state. And also kind of when you think of California, you think Los Angeles, you know, a lot of people from outside of our state can think of LA to be a real hub. And we've seen that really take fruition over the last year where um, there's been increase in demand, increased wait times for, for abortion care in Los Angeles. So there was $20 million allocated to enhance the capacity of the local infrastructure to um, support abortion care in Los Angeles County. We also just recently released a request for proposals and received proposals for an uncompensated care grant program. So uh, grants to providers who provide abortion and contraceptive care um, to cover the costs of uncompensated care. So for patients who can get free access to services if they have a lower income and are unable to pay out of pocket. And that is for people in California or people traveling to California. As So there's $40 million for that state program. There's also $20 million for a practical support program. As we all know, you know, the right to um, access and having the availability of clinical care doesn't mean that you could actually get yourself to a healthcare provider to get the care that you want to need. There's a lot that goes in between like transportation, hotel, lodging, care coordination, childcare, loss of wages. We are going to be distributing grants to organizations that are going to provide those critical direct supports that make access possible. And then this year, recognizing that after a year of lived experience post-Dobbs, I think we're very soon coming up on the one-year anniversary of the devastating Dobbs decision, we also have a package of 17 new bills making their way through the legislature to advance you know, reproductive health access and privacy protections for patients and doctors and many other uh, components that after a year of lived experience, recognizing what's still needed here in California. And um, as Fiona mentioned, you know, we are a bellwether state. We are, we are kind of a innovations lab when it comes to what's possible. And we're happy to not only have a package of bold legislative priorities here in California, and they could be models for, for other states. I also want to mention that we do also have now, thanks to California voters who voted in favor of uh, Proposition 1 last year, we now have the constitutional right stamped in our state constitution to access abortion and contraception. And that is a protected right now and for generations to come. So that those are just a few things that we've been able to do here in California. And I know our work still isn't done. And I'll let our listeners know, I have a link to that package of bills that are going through because it's really impressive. So you can access the show notes and you can access those bills and that legislation because so much of it is critically important, including privacy in healthcare, so that if you're coming from a state 
that is hostile toward abortion access, you can't be prosecuted. There's one to prevent a bounty hunter and Bale's bondsman from showing up and trying to arrest you for accessing care outside of the state because Texas now has a whole system to try and prosecute people even when they leave the state for care. So we have an incredible set of bills that are in that package, and I'll have links to everybody. So Fiona, on the on the student end, when we talk about access, and access is really critical because it's really hard to take time off. Most doctors only are available nine to five, Monday through Friday. How are students accessing healthcare, like just amongst your friends and what you're seeing in, in your work? Are they asking mom and dad to drive them to the doctor for this stuff? Or are there other ways that they're accessing healthcare, especially around reproductive and and sexual health? Yeah, I think from what I've experienced, I know a lot of my friends and peers generally seek student-centered services. So whether that's through like school clubs that do particularly youth outreach or local services run by universities or any local organizations, that's how they um, access services. And most of the time it's like very grounded on just minor consent because they tend to avoid getting their parents involved in that just because of the stigma behind it. But I would say like something that has really worked are nonprofits that really make sure that they're outreaching to the local schools and that kind of filing in through like, you know, posters on school campus or like certain newsletter emails that have to deal with how students can access these resources. Because other than that, it's really hard to tap into those resources just because, you know, where are we supposed to look, especially if like it's a service that you need to go in person for and it's hard for I guess, students to really know, like, which ones are reliable and which ones, you know, may be grounded on misinformation. And I'll also add, I think that, you know, there has been a significant movement to have school-based health centers to help um, support youth access to healthcare so they don't have to worry about transportation, as well as, you know, when one of our programs at Essential Access Health is we administer the federal Title X federal family planning program in California. And so what that means is that we receive federal funds to distribute to community health centers, city and county health departments across the state. And I know that to support um, their delivery of adolescent-friendly sexual and reproductive health services. And one of our the health centers that we support in the Central Valley, for example, uses that funding to support a transportation you know, access to be able to pick up, you know, they have partnerships with schools and school nurses that make appointments to be able to take youth to uh, and from the health center during school hours, because that's another great protective law that we have in California, which is that youth can have access to health centers during school hours and have to be allowed to leave the school grounds for accessing health care and that without parental notification. So that is something to protect teen health. And then, of course, under COVID, we've had broader adoption from both providers and patients for telehealth, recognizing that, you know, especially sure in Nevada County and in Orange County, where there isn't a lot of public transportation options, uh, right, or where, you know, we know transportation and, and gas prices, although going down, are still a lot that is sometimes, and with time, it's just difficult to, to, to get to a health center. So telehealth has also been a critical pathway 
for youth and other patients, I think, to try to get sexual and reproductive health services that don't require an in-person visit. And we've also been able to move policy to be able to be able to roll in that program that I talked about earlier, Family Pact, to provide free and confidential family planning services for youth um, that you could just enroll and get the care you need virtually and remotely. You don't have to go to a health center to enroll or get the care that you need. So we've been making progress but still, I think it, uh, the outreach and education still is critical to make sure that that youth know about all of these different options. Well, and those are phenomenal resources that are really lacking in so many other states. And it works for a, a great model here in California. Fiona mentioned that students were going to student-centered health things. And one one barrier to care, especially for LGBTQ youth, is feeling like if they show up, their healthcare provider is not going to be receptive. And I know uh, Essential Access Health has worked on some of this, but what are some of the ways providers and that your, what skills are you giving providers to let people know that, hey, we will treat you regardless of gender or sexual identity and more than just putting up a rainbow flag on the website? Yeah, it's it's definitely a priority for essential access to enhance the capacity of, of the healthcare workforce to offer services that are inclusive and that feel safe and support the the well-being and identities of all of their patients. So we have a, a, a an arm that's our training arm called the Learning Exchange. And also through the Title X program that I mentioned, where we offer trainings to providers and resources and toolkits to um, support best practices in providing care, including even, even, you know, things around preferred pronouns, using gender neutral language, taking a very, you know, an inclusive sexual history. Also, you know, just making sure that that folks um, understand what are the LGBTQ plus issues and needs around sexual reproductive health and to not make assumptions, to offer the same, you know, you know, appropriate care um, to all patients and not just make assumptions about what one patient might need over another, because that also adds to stigma. So we want to also have make sure that providers have the tools that they need to make sure that they're providing care that is, again, responsive, it's respectful, and it is, you know, also meeting people where they are. We also want to make sure it's not only around LGBTQ plus youth, you know, and sexual and reproductive health. There's also a lot of, of really positive movement, I think, around looking at appropriate, you know, responsive, respectful healthcare for folks who have different abilities, folks who have different body sizes, you know, sexual and reproductive health. Um, you know, it's like, don't make assumptions about who's having sex, who should have sex, right? And and how and where. So um, I think that we we still have, again, a lot of work to do, but we've been making progress in advancing more inclusive, equitable sexual and reproductive health care. And I think that that's something that we are really committed to, again, at Essential Access. And I also just want to mention that you know, I've been contemplating more and more and, and talking with partners about we've the LGBTQ plus community, sexual reproductive health, reproductive justice community have always been allies standing in solidarity with each other. And I think, though, if you look at the map where our trans youth books are being banned, right, where 
there's, you know, attacks on LGBTQ plus rights and reproductive rights and bodily autonomy. That Venn diagram is just like one giant cloudy circle. (laughs) And so I think that we do have to be exploring not only how we could be in solidarity with each other, but how we actually meld movements and combine our collective power and, you know, and stance of human rights and justice for all to um, really impact change and, um, and be a force that is, uh, can, can hopefully counter some of the attacks that all of our communities are facing on our bodily autonomy and um, our individual human rights. And you're spot on with that. The same people who want to ban abortion want to ban gender affirming care, want to ban access to information. All it, It's the same group attacking all of us. So yeah, bringing those groups together. And voting rights. And, you know, I think that we could talk about a long, a long list. So um, yeah, I think that as we, you know, what got us here, you know, is really thinking about, you know, taking away at different rights-based approaches that are being ticked back away. And now we have to think about the overall humanity, overall human experience and justice for all. When you look at that picture, you see a really big tent. So Fiona, a lot of these bills, uh, there's 400 plus anti-LGBTQ bills currently in legislation across the U.S. And a vast majority of them are out there to protect the children. Because apparently going to high school now is just a bunch of trans girls in the soccer rooms or locker rooms screwing up, you know, your your trophy things. What's the reality of what's it like with queer kids on campus? Like what do you feel anything you need to be protected from um, that any of this legislation is really addressing? I think that's a really good question. And thankfully, I've seen a lot of youth movements in states that are like more conservative, like Florida and Texas, like cracking down on those, you know, anti-LGBTQ plus and trans laws. Um, So I'm really glad that there are still, you know, youth standing up for their own rights. And I would definitely say that I think queer liberation is just really about like minding your own business. (laughs) Like you don't need to be making laws about children and youth who aren't your kids and you know what's inside their pants or like what they do to protect their own health and I think that's the main thing I think I've also like faced some similar struggles with another bill that I'm advocating for which is basically expanding mental health rights or like minors consent rights on mental health access for youth on Medi-Cal and I think just from that bill seeing like I guess the parents rights movements often like really antagonize I guess the relationship between children and parents and like how they see parents as like they'll never understand us or like you know like oh I don't want them involved in my own well-being and while that is sometimes the case for like you know maybe parents who aren't as accepting of um, young people's identities a lot of the times that's not the case a lot of times like there are external factors that youth may why like youth want to take autonomy of their own health and protection maybe that's because their parents work too much or maybe that's because they just feel like more comfortable for them to explore that themselves so I think it's just kind of I guess counterintuitive just seeing like parents make laws <laughs> that will affect like all the children in that state or even country um when you know they should just be worrying about their own kid. I do because it's just you know this whole idea of 
parents' rights has become, you know, a big movement of the conservative right. And um, and thank you, Fiona, for you and your and you and your peers and colleagues and the other for really kind of like and having to face that and 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 doing the work that you're doing. I do want to flag there is also a case that's going through the courts in a similar vein. It's um, Deanda versus Becerra, where there was a kind of what you were saying, Fiona, about like, you know, kind of parents wanting to put what how they want to maybe parent onto like all families. But there's a, a parent, a father in Texas who has children because <laughs> he's a father, but who um, filed a suit in the state of Texas against the Title X Federal Family Planning Program, which has a long hallmark of that program is confidential access for youth. Uh, To say that that program, because of that component of protecting uh, confidential access, goes against his right as a parent. So is suing the federal government over this. And, you know, his children, to his knowledge, have not even tried to access these services. So it's just, it is something that is a is popping up all over the state and country and something that we definitely um, have to be looking at and thinking about and, you know, and, and trying to talk with parents and just like all folks, you know, like we should all have the ability to have that autonomy, you know, and we shouldn't have the, you know, make, make choices for other people. Yeah. And I love the work that, that both of your organizations are doing, that both of you are doing to continue pushing for more autonomy, because this is the only way we're going to get all of us liberated. So before we go, uh, I will have the show notes with the links to all your groups and stuff, but do you want to plug anything? Do you want to promote any websites, any social media links uh, for people who want to get involved, who want to support you and your work? Uh, go for it. Yeah, um, sure. I can go first. So Genup's Instagram is um, at genup, which is G-E-N-U-P dot U-S. And if you want to follow us, you can kind of track our legislative work. We usually post a lot about different opportunities to get involved, like applying to our team or um, going to tweet storms or just advocacy events and things like that. If you're a young person listening and you're fighting for causes like these, just keep going and um, that there's a really big movement and that you're playing an important part in it. I love that. And uh, for folks who want to learn more about Essential Access Health's work, um, can visit Essential Access org and follow us on the socials and and LinkedIn at e s s n access h l t h. So, Antivice, if you can put that in your show notes, because that's a little bit more complicated because of our long name with many letters and um, the letter uh, character restrictions when it comes to the socials handles. Um, and also for youth, we have uh, for youth listening. Also, we have Teen Source. Dot org and teen source on the socials to visit. And also, you know, we talked about parental rights and and how, you know, there there are movements that we are um, having to, you know, look at and pay attention to. But at Essential Access Health, we recognize that parents and caregivers do have an important role to play in, in being youth allies and um and supporting the youth that they care for and care about. Um, and that includes being a primary source of information and um, and having open and honest 
and non-judgmental communication around sexual and reproductive health. So we have also a website for parents and caregivers called talkwithyourkids.org. So uh, we know that that for some, especially who grew up without having those conversations themselves, um, it's difficult. And, and again, I use plural conversations because I think sometimes when people think about sexual and reproductive health, they talk about the talk. Um, whereas really, if you visit talkwithyourkids.org, there's information around. This is really a lifelong conversation and dialogue that um, starts from the beginning and and is ongoing. So those resources, um, hopefully folks can check out. And then also, and thank you, I think you mentioned that you would be uh, creating a link to the abortion package, um, but there's also fabcouncil.org that has um, uh, all of the future abortion council work here in California that we're doing. Thank you so much. We will have all of those links and a lot more so you can follow the legislation. Thank you for starting this on a positive note. You both and your organizations have done so much to advance this work in the last several years. And it's it's nice to see when you're fighting in the trenches and all of these other things. I will endorse all those resources, the talk to your kids. I have sent a lot of my uh, students to when they've gone through my classes and stuff. It's a great resource. So check them out, support the organizations as you can, and we'll see you next week. Remember to like, you know, do all the things, like, subscribe, promote it, whatever. Thank you. This has been Auntie Vice, and thank you both for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.